I think Jared's, uh, Jared's passing out some handouts there, so if you don't have one, you can raise your hand and Michael or Jared will bring them around there. So this is the, uh, yeah, everybody's got their hands raised now. Great. This is uh, a topic of local witness, our breakout. Uh, Pastor Rob Snyder is in Luther Hall, so if you're interested in thinking a little bit on uh, cross-cultural witness, Rob is talking there on uh, specifically focusing on David Brainerd, which is what he wrote his thesis on. But we're going to look at local witness. I'm just going to open in a word of prayer, and we'll look at a few things together. So let's, let's open in a word of prayer together. Gracious Father, we thank you for the word that we have heard this morning. I ask now that you would help us. May this be a time when we are equipped, uh, when things are clarified in our minds. And we ask, Lord, that you would give us, even as we've heard, a, a renewed zeal and eagerness to preach the gospel, to speak the gospel in these various local contexts in which you have put us. We thank you for this, and we look expectantly to you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, Julie and I, we had uh, the privilege of living in Kentucky for three and a half years. So actually, Ryan Fullerton was our pastor for three and a half years when we were down in Kentucky. Uh, and, and when we entered into Kentucky, it was a little bit like culture shock. You know, I mean, they speak the same language, but especially when you get out to eastern Kentucky, I mean, that's just like a, that's a totally different world out there. They are the hillbillies of hillbillies. You think we're rednecks? You go to eastern Kentucky, it's a, it's a totally different deal. And I remember in uh, driving around in Louisville, Kentucky, there would be, uh, there was a slogan that was used regularly around the city. It would be plastered up on the billboards. You'd see it on social media in different places. The slogan was, keep Louisville weird. Keep Louisville weird. And they did a good job of it. There was, there was a lot of weird things in there, as I say, and, and throughout the entire, uh, throughout the entire uh, state there. Well, the reality is, it, it kind of stuck with me, and the reality is, is, as Christians, we are going to have to get used to being classified as the weirdos. And so you see there kind of that first point on your handout, weirdos in a wild world, right? We're weirdos. Now, it's interesting. I actually just looked up the definition of weird out of curiosity. You know, how, how does a dictionary define weird? And one of the definitions there stated that weird is suggesting something that is supernatural. Weird is suggesting something that is supernatural. And so actually I think that's, that's a little bit what we're aiming for, is that our witness ought to send, suggest something that is supernatural about it. The message we convey and the manner in which we convey it, and even the methods, as we've been hearing this morning about the methods of preaching, we're going to look at some of that in a little bit more detail. Well, all of that ought to suggest something truly supernatural, what we would say is truly spiritual, namely from the Holy Spirit. And so, uh, as I said, we're going to have to get used to being weirdos in a wild world, and it is a wild world. Right? You always hear your grandma would say, oh, things are just getting crazier and crazier, and you think that they may be crazy. That's uh, not that bad when you're a five-year-old. But then you kind of get to our age, and you look out there and think, my goodness, things are just collapsing all over the place, right? It's just a mess out there. And so, uh, as, I, as I stated, we're going to have to get used to being weird in this wild world. Now, when I say weird, I want to qualify that. I want to qualify that because there are a lot of things that Christians do weirdly that they don't need to do weirdly. 
Uh, th- there's a lot of things out there that, if you want to take a look about weird things that Christians do, I'll just point you in the direction of Lloyd Legalist on Twitter. So if you're on Twitter, you can go look at Lloyd Legalist. He's got all sorts of videos there about the weird things that Christians do. So I'm not talking about being unnecessarily provocative or weird. But there is a recognition that the things that we are about, even in our local context, are going to look weird. And more than that, you're going to be labeled as a hater, an abuser, an enabler of abuse, a bigot, intolerant, right? And especially in our Canadian context, it's a big no-no to start drawing some lines in the sand. And so what I want to think this morning about is, is a few different local contexts about how we can bear witness in a proper sense of the way we use the word weird in a supernatural way. And so you see on your handout there, which I don't have my handout, but if, if you've got a hand, no, that's okay. I got my notes, but sometimes I like to follow the handout because I changed my notes from what I got in the handout, so I have no idea. Um, the, the first local context there that I want to point to you is the local context of our own hearts. The local context of our own hearts. Ah, thank you. See, a great wife who can find, right? So young men, find a wife like that who, who can read your mind and helps you out. So beginning here in the local context of the heart. Okay, so turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3. This is kind of like the, the classic location that you go to when you talk about apologetics and evangelism and how to do cultural engagement. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15. Actually, I'm going to start in verse 14. So Peter's writing to Christians, Christians who are living in a context, you know, in some ways similar to ours. There wasn't state-sponsored persecution at this point, but they were facing all sorts of opposition, social opposition. Their social credit score was going down. They were losing friends. Family was opposed to them, maybe losing their jobs, losing their homes. There was opposition for being a Christian. And Peter says in 1 Peter 3, 14, But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. So right there, Peter's very clear that crucial and at the center of the apologetic task or evangelistic task, if you will, of being a witness is that actually we are people who right in the very core of our beings, all of our ambitions, all of our desires, all of our activities in the mind and the heart are gripped then by a desire to honor Christ, that Christ would be honored as the Lord, the Holy Lord. And so, in a room this size, I think it's good, I'm assuming many of you are Christians, but if you're not, well, that's then the first key is that you actually need to then submit yourself to the Lordship of Christ. As witnesses, we are only going to be effective when we have submitted ourselves, when that most local of contexts, namely our own heart, are living in glad submission to Christ. So we look out in the world, you know, we look out in Canada. Think of our local context here in Canada. And we look out there and we see all sorts of madness, right? Conversion therapy ban, 
it's convert, talking about conversions and calling people to convert is actually a criminal activity right now. Uh, we think of all the transgender mutilation. Euthanasia is being you know, hoisted upon people as the dignified way of dying. All sorts of things. Drag queen story hours. You, you can just rattle on and on about all the craziness, right? And there's a tendency in all of us that we can look at all of the stuff that's going on out there. And we've got to be aware of it. But actually, then we ignore what Jesus tells us to do first of all and actually deal with our own soul first. Look in. We've got to go logging. Take that log out of our, our own eye. And so, I, I was just thinking even this week, our country's motto. You know, the motto of the country, Psalm 72, verse 8. It's plastered all over uh, all over official documents, Psalm 72, 8, may he have dominion from sea to sea. Speaking there of Christ. Christ having dominion, the king having dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. That was kind of the foundations of our country, and of course we've gone far away from that. Those desires have been eroded a long time ago. But the truth is, is that dominion actually needs to begin in the heart of you and I. Right? That dominion, it does extend from sea to sea. And one day, the glory of God will cover the earth as the waters cover the seas, but it, it actually begins then with Christ gripping your heart. And so, that is ultimately what we need. That is what we need, is we need to be gripped by the Lord by a true fear of the Lord. I'm reminded of, um, of what David Wells, many of you, uh, if you haven't written, read David Wells, you need to read David Wells. He's got a, an, a great ability to understand kind of what has been going on in the evangelical world. David Wells, Wells wrote these scathing words over two decades ago, kind of as he surveyed the evangelical landscape. And he said, the fundamental problem in the evangelical world today is that God rests too inconsequentially upon the church. His truth is too distant. His grace is too ordinary. His judgment is too benign. His gospel is too easy. And his Christ is too common. And I, and I think that actually, as I said, we can look out there and we can kind of cast stones at the churches and the, and the landscape. But oftentimes, if you're anything like me, your own heart is not gripped with the consequentiality of God, of the uncommonality of Christ. And so, it needs to begin here. If we're going to be effective witnesses, then we need to be gripped by this fear of the Lord, by a submission to the Lordship of Christ. So that's the first context. Now, what I want to think about with you this morning, for the rest of our time, is then these other local contexts there that you have on your handout. The church, the home, and the workplace. I'll spend the majority of time on the church and the home and a few comments at the end in the workplace. Now, when you talk about local context, it's kind of a little bit difficult to figure out, well, what is local? We live in a global world, right? What's local when you can do work with somebody on the other side of the world, flip on your screen? You can be on the other side of the world within a day, right? Like, in a sense, then, the world is local, which is a great opportunity for global witness. We have all these means and opportunities. But I'm thinking here of kind of three particular local contexts. And in these contexts, what is going to be key is that we do the Lord's work 
in the Lord's way. So Clint, he was already stealing some of my stuff. Doing the Lord's work in the Lord's way will never lack the Lord's supply. Right? You can read a, a little book there uh, by Francis Schaeffer, The Lord's Work in the Lord's Way. Right? The methods matter. The method of our engagement in our local culture, it matters. And so let's think about then witness in the church. What I'd say first is that we need to retrieve a confidence in God's ordinary means of witness through the local church. And in fact, the centrality of the local church as the primary institution and organism through which the witness extends to the ends of the earth. The local church. The local church is the institution, the organism that Christ has decreed will withstand and even push back against the gates of hell. It is, as Paul writes to Timothy, the pillar and buttress of the truth. That is the local church. We think of that, and we, we look at our local churches, right, and we look at them and think, my goodness, what good can come out of this, right? You look at all these people with their mess of sin, all these people with confusion and all sorts of baggage in their past. What, what good can come out of this? How is it that Christ's dominion is going to actually extend from sea to sea through this institution, these people? Well, the reality is, is that the Lord, of course, loves to work through weakness, right? He loves to work through weakness in order that he would receive all the glory. And so my argument this morning is that built into the fabric, into the DNA, if you will, of the local church are all the necessary elements for making and maturing disciples. That is, if you look to the local church and the local church does what Christ commands it to do, you're actually going to be a very effective witness in your local context, so historically, Protestants have affirmed that there are two essential marks to a true church. The right preaching of the word and the proper administration of the ordinances, baptism and the Lord's Supper. So preaching and administration of the ordinances. And I would submit to you that we would strengthen our witness here in Alberta or wherever you're from if your church would commit themselves and kind of retrieve a, a commitment to these things. The right preaching of the word, and the proper administration of the ordinances. So first, proclamation of the truth. Uh, I, I grew up on a farm just north of Calgary here, up in Olds. Every spring, of course, we'd go out, we'd plant the crop. Now, imagine me as a you know, 15-year-old kid going out there, and my dad comes up to me and, and says, Okay, Josh, I want you to go fuel up the tractor. You've got to put the seed in the tank, head out to this quarter, and plant it. When you're done, come back. And so, okay, fine. But as I'm walking to the tractor, at the corner of my eye, I see, oh, there's a quad. There's an ATV. I, I think I could get that done much quicker by using that ATV. That tractor, max speed, 20 mile an hour, that ATV, it can go five times as fast. So I'm, I'm going to go rip around the field, I'm going to go grab a few bags of seed and start scattering that seed out there. So two hours later, I've gone around the field and scattered seed and come back. And my dad's like, well, that's, that's fast. How'd you finish the field so quickly? And I'd say, well, I, I used the quad. And what does my dad say to me? You idiot, right? You're an idiot. 
Why, why, why would you ignore my instructions? You think that you're wiser than me. And we laugh, of course, because it's insane that you're not going to do that. But the reality is, is that our flesh is always tempted to try to find the quick fix. Right? We're looking for the quick solution. And I'd say the church is no different. So we need a retrieval of then using the Lord's means, namely, first and foremost, the proclamation of the word. I don't need to reiterate everything that we just heard this morning in Ryan's first sermon. Right, the preaching of the word. God saves sinners through the convictional, uh, spirit-empowered preaching of his word, and he matures then disciples in the context of a local church who will go and replicate that work in every sphere of life where they're at. Right, so the preaching of the word is absolutely vital. Now, one thing I, I just note, just even as we think of local witness, as we think of the preaching of the word, which then equips the saints, and then you are to go and take that same word and, and speak it truthfully and clearly and compassionately to sinners. One of the th- concerns that I think we need to be aware of in our context is that as the madness prevails, right, as, this, uh, as lawlessness abounds, one of, our cons- one of the issues will be that we actually then start gravitating towards other people who are conservative and share something of a conservative worldview, share something of, oh, well, we believe in at least men and women should be in different bathrooms, and we're going to look at them and say, they're okay. And so we're actually going to start minimizing the differences that we have with many people who are good-living people but are nonetheless destined for hell under the judgment of God. And so that, that's just one concern. I, I know my own tendency, right? You can kind of, you know, link arms with Jordan Peterson or Ben Shapiro or whoever your kind of favorite conservative commentator that has a little bit of sanity. And then you forget that actually, no, those people, they need the gospel. They need the word spoken to them. Uh, I think there's a kind of a pervasive spirit mentality here in Alberta of what I would just call Alberta neighborliness. There's lots of moral, good-living people, and yet, as I say, their legalism is not going to get them into heaven. And so Paul, we need to take what Paul says in the first three chapters of Romans, and and where he talks about the lawless Gentile and the, the, the legalist Jew, and says, none of you are righteous. All have fallen short of the glory of God. We've got to keep that in mind even as we speak to the kind of the cultural issues of our day. Another thing just to note here when it comes to the proclamation is that we need to be then aware of the issues that people are dealing with. One of the weaknesses, I think, of a lot of evangelistic methods or apologetic methods is that they kind of have like these canned responses, right? And it's like, I'm just going to go zip through the response, you know, the Romans road or whatever it might be, and I'm not saying there's anything wrong necessarily with the Romans road, but what you miss is actually the people in front of you. You, you miss kind of the uniqueness of those people and the situation that they're dealing with and the circumstances that they find themselves. And so faithful witness means applying God's word to the issues of the day and to the issues that particular people are dealing with. 
Right? So we got to, like one guy said, you got to make sure that you're preaching as if there's people in front of you. And the same thing applies to when you're at the coffee shop, you're at the workplace, in the home. Well, you've got to instruct as though there are real, living, breathing people in front of you with all sorts of experiences, all sorts of angst in their heart. You've got to speak to real people and seek to persuade them. And so, uh, you know, of course that requires then a listening ear. It requires then a heart that is sympathetic and cares for people. You know, so for instance, somebody comes up to you at church. Somebody comes up to the newcomer's desk at church, right? We can, they say, oh, I've lost my keys. Well, the response is not, ah, I've got a clever way into the gospel. Let me tell you about Jesus and what he says about the key to eternal life. No, the response is, well, let me help you find your keys, right? Like, you're, you're dealing with the actual people. And Lord willing, you know, your act of service, you'll have an opportunity to share the gospel. But you don't need to kind of weasel your way into things in, a, in this kind of false bridge into a conversation. Deal with the people that are there in front of you. I like what John Frame, uh, what he writes. He says, the goal of apologetics or evangelism is not merely to produce sound arguments, but to persuade people. Because not every sound argument is persuasive with a particular individual or group, it is all the more important to deal with inquirers as individuals and in a loving way to try to understand each of their particular needs and to develop arguments directed towards those needs. In effect, then, there will be a different apologetic method for every inquirer, though in some respects, all of our methods should be alike. Okay, so speak and get to know the people, then, that are around you. Get to know them. Talk to them. Ask them questions. Listen to them. And then speak the truth. And often you'll find, then, as you get to know them, you'll just find some natural ways to bridge into conversations about more weighty matters, things pertaining to eternity. Just as, as we think about then the local church being kind of this key uh, engine through, through which then the advance of the gospel happens, one just encouragement and even an exhortation that I would give is that if we are going to be faithful stewards and we want to actually invest in local witness, See, now, now my uh, iPad went off, and I was making fun of Ryan yesterday because he didn't have his iPad. Okay, I got, I got it figured out here. We're good. We're good. W- one way that we need to um, consider then our, our local witness, now I've got to find my place. Yeah, no, no. Go kill a tree now. Go kill a tree. Um, <laughs> We're good. Planting and growing churches requires money. It requires an investment. Healthy churches need space. They need to be able to pay pastors who can devote themselves to preaching and equipping and kind of having this multiplying ministry. Uh, One thing I would just say is that what I find is a lot of Christians, they give a lot of their time, their talents, their treasures to what I'd say are really broadly evangelical and sometimes not even evangelical movements. Uh, It's what 
it's what uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones talked about, this evangelical fascination with movements. And it looks like lots of stuff is happening, but oftentimes these movements are committed to some kind of doctrinal minimalism. And, and sometimes not even, they don't even have doctrinal standards. It's more just social activism. And again, not opposed to social activism. But what I find then is that many Christians are investing a lot of their energy in these other things while neglecting the local church. So a lot of local churches are struggling because they're not receiving support that they need from the fact that other you know, people are given to, to other causes. So I'm not telling you how to invest your money specifically, but what I am saying is that if the local church is as Christ says it is, the institution through which, against which the gates of Hades will not prevail, then investing in a healthy local church is investing in something that's going to actually last. It's a wise investment. Now, that's the proclamation of the word. Of course, there's different ways of proclaiming the word, uh, you know, vocally, praying. We've heard that. Again, I just encourage, pray for your pastors. We've tried to make a habit in our home with our children to pray at supper on Saturday night specifically for whoever is preaching the next day. Uh, sing the word. Sing the word. I think one of the great means of witness that we have to unbelievers is a church that sings full out. I mean, think about it. Think about it. As you come here, and as, as people would observe and hear all sorts of different kinds of songs, which I encourage a church to have kind of the full expression of what you find in the Psalms of lament, praise, petition, confession, kind of the full expression there of the human experience. As you sing all these different kinds of songs, again, the world's going to look at that and think, something's a little bit odd. Like, why would a Christian, as they're full of sorrow, still sing? Like, it's, it's part of our distinctive witness. Singing congregational songs that reflect these biblical truths. It's a way then for the world to see our hope in action. Now, now another point there, the second point there, the borders and fences. That relates to, uh, to the ordinances, baptism and the Lord's Supper. These ordinances draw clear borders and fences between those who are safe and secure in Christ and those who are under his judgment. So baptism and the Lord's Supper, they bring a visual, tangible reminder about the reasons for our hope and reinforce that unless one is believing in Christ, there is no reason for them to have assurance of their salvation. So only those who are baptized are permitted to join as members. The pastors, they fence the Lord's table whenever you're taking communion together, warning unbelievers as Jesus and Paul would warn us not to partake or else bring judgment upon themselves. So what we see here then is that local churches, if you're going to be an effective local witness, means you actually got to draw some lines. There's, there's got to be some lines and boundaries to clarify the difference between those who are in and those who are out. Now this is not elitism, right? Because those who are in and get to partake, partake not because we're so clever and we figured it out, Right? But we are confessing then our utter dependence on the Lord. The one, he is the one who makes us worthy, in a sense, to participate in 
these ordinances. Of course, the Canadian ethos is diversity, equity, inclusion, right? Diversity, equity, and inclusion. We want to be tolerant. And what I'd say is that the church, when it's done right, is actually a diverse people who love equity and who are very inclusive. People from every tribe, tongue, and nation, right? But there are clear borders. And we do non-Christians who come to our gatherings, we do non-Christians a disservice, which is truly unloving then, to allow them to be baptized or take the Lord's Supper and to receive some kind of assurance of their salvation when in fact they are not saved. So my point here is that actually drawing these lines and putting some borders and fences when it comes to the ordinances is one of the means that the Lord would use as an unbeliever comes into our midst to create, hopefully within them, an angst leading them to ask the question, what prevents me from being baptized? Why am I not permitted to the Lord's table? We want them to actually be examining themselves. It's a means that the Lord would use first to give assurance of salvation to true believers, but also by God's grace to awaken those who are not believing to see what must I do to be saved and to, to join in the communion of the saints. Right? It's, it's unloving to give false assurances. It's unloving to give false assurances. The devil, what he loves to do is he likes to take and rip away the assurance of salvation from those who ought to have it and give assurance of salvation to those who shouldn't. Going to hell with a lie in your right hand. The last thing I'll just say about the local church, because i got to hustle here, classic, is distinct love. We have to be known as a, for a distinct love. Jesus, you'll remember, what did Jesus say? John 13, 35. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have what? Love for one another. Uh, one thing, I, I've, just, I've encouraged our church. I don't think we did everything perfectly over the last couple of years. Uh, there were lots of tense conversations. There were lots of sins against one, one another. But what, I, what I'm thankful for, in our local church particularly, is that the Lord preserved a, a real sense of unity and love. Right? So much so that I could actually commend our church and say, you're an exemplary church in that regard. We, we ought not to overlook. I, I think... Reform folks, kind of like us, were really keen on precise doctrine, sound doctrine, all important, all good. And, you know, we, we take and we make fun of, I make fun of that phrase all the time. You know, preach the gospel, use words if necessary. Well, that's not true. But it does capture something of the importance of our conduct. Just read through the letter of First Peter sometime. Read through it this week. Peter emphasizes over and over and over the importance of, if you're going to live in a hostile world, exiles in Babylon with all the madness around you, the opposition that you face, one of the keys to your witness is going to be a distinctive Christian conduct marked by love. A true love, a love that is willing to overlook offenses, not hold grudges, not keep the tally. A love that is marked by even submission to proper authorities. So that is one of the keys for local churches is that we need to uh, consider then 
love. Now, one thing I just say specifically as a strategy, I think, for witness is to consider then your church's ministry of hospitality. What does your ministry of hospitality look like? Doing that well is an important part of our outreach. So, just a a few things to keep in mind. Do you keep an eye out for newcomers? Like if you're a member here, you got to have your eyes looking out and see, I've never seen that person. Now maybe they're a Christian, but maybe they're not. I'm going to go approach them. Right? Keep an eye out for newcomers. Make sure they're welcomed. Um, Another thing about hospitality, I just say, secure your space. Now what do I mean by that? Well, make this space, your church building and the ministries that are happening here, actually a space that is safe and secure specifically for kids. And this kind of was on the forefront of my mind a little bit this week uh, because of a situation that one of our church members dealt with this week in terms of public spaces with perverts, bathrooms. Right? You, you can't go to the swimming pool anymore. It is not a safe space. Change rooms are not a safe space. And so actually, I think one of the unique ways that churches will have a really great opportunity for witness, specifically to young families, is that we really go above and beyond to say our space is truly safe. Now, of course, there's not 100%, but you do whatever you can to make it a safe space, an inviting place for people to come. I think you'll find actually in this increasingly mad world that families will appreciate that They'll be attracted to a space where kids can come, they can play, they can hear things, they can learn and grow in the context of a safe space. That's just a ministry of hospitality. Think about different kind of creative ways to do that. Okay, turning to witness in the home, a couple comments on that. A lot of this is pretty straightforward. Many of you, family worship is a regular part of your routine. Um, That's key. Of course, a home starts with a biblical marriage. Now, two comments on marriage as it relates to witness in, these, in this context. First, missionary dating and marriage is prohibited. It's prohibited. Right? There's Christians who have a good desire to witness to unbelieving boyfriend or girlfriend or fiancé, but God prohibits this kind of relationship. Look all over the scriptures, and you see that When there's this unequally yoked marriage, it never ends well. And so we need to trust the Lord's wisdom. If you're here, you're dating an unbeliever, you're engaged to an unbeliever, you've got to put that relationship on pause and, and, and move on. Now, one thing I would say is that if you're married to an unbeliever, Paul says you need to stay in that marriage. And in fact, you have an opportunity within that to bear witness so Peter, 1 Peter 3, he talks to wives who are married to ungodly husbands, to unbelieving husbands. And he says to them, you have a great opportunity here to win your husband, but it's not going to be by nagging at him at the supper table every, every day. It's not going to be that you pull out your Bible every meal and you preach a sermon on Romans 3. It is actually going to be, once again, by your good conduct. By your good conduct, you're going to win your husband. So, th- so that's, that's what I'd say about kind of marriage as it relates to missions. Of course, 
those who are in marriages, it requires investment. Your marriage will either be one of the greatest assets to your ministry or it will be a great detriment. And so invest in it. Take time. Uh, lots of couples, I've found, are living functionally as roommates. Right? They're, they're sharing the same house, but they're just functionally roommates. That's not going to... That's not going to adorn the gospel well. Second thing I'd say is regarding then witness between parents and children. I mean, Ephesians 6, 1, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and your mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Basic formula Basic means here in the context of a home, you need to instruct, you need to model, and you need to discipline. It's pretty simple. You can look at resources online. I point you in the direction of uh, um, Don Whitney's book, Family Worship. Many of you have used that. I don't need to, to go into that in much detail. What I want to emphasize, though, what I want to emphasize is first, you cannot assume that the default mode of your children is that they are safe. I think a lot of Christians think that the factory setting that our children come out on is they're okay with the Lord and the Lord's okay with them. But the emphasis of the New Testament is that, no, you're not okay based on the family that you're born into. You need to be born again, right? And so we emphasize then the necessity of the new birth. And, and that comes then, the Lord would give that regeneration, that conversion through teaching and instructing and discipline, these means. Now, as it relates to modeling, as it relates to modeling, I actually think this is an area where most of us are probably the weakest. Most of us are the, the weakest when it comes to modeling. What I've seen is tendencies in Christian families and those committed to family worship to overreact to the excesses of maybe previous generations or, or different uh, areas of evangelicalism, or overreact to the excesses of the entertainment-oriented world. And, and what they do is they overreact, and in their place, they put new forms of legalisms. Okay? So, for instance, well, the world is addicted to entertainment. So we're going to go to the extreme, and we're going to be the holy people, and we're going to do John Piper, right? Get rid of the TV! We're getting rid of the TV. That's how we're going to Make our children holy. Now, I'm not prescribing one way or the other whether you should get rid of the TV. Maybe you should. I don't know. But my point here is that you can start adding these kind of legalisms in place, thinking that this is ultimately what is going to save your children. And that if you don't do something, your children are just automatically destined to hell. So let's be serious about all these things. Let's be serious about the gospel, eternity, the word, the truth, holiness, obedience, right? The intensity of our discipleship ought to match the urgency of the matter. It's an urgent matter that our children need to be saved. But beware of the idol of intensity. Uh, that's something that we've talked a lot about as elders here, right? There's this false understanding that intensity equals faithfulness. Say, there, there is a certain intensity that the Christian has, right? But if your kid always comes to you and thinks, like, Dad is always just so intense. Can he not just chill for a minute? So, 
what I'm saying is that sometimes the most effective thing you can do in your home is that you put down your phone and you actually get on the ground and play with your kids. You know, heaven forbid you go take them out for ice cream. Or actually, you miss a night of family worship because you're doing something. It's not automatically going to mean that your child turns into a sociopath. I recommend one article that every parent read. It's called Parenting 001 by Kevin DeYoung. I'll just give you a little snippet. He said, I have four kids, and besides the Lord's grace, I'm banking on the fact that there really are just a few non-negotiables in parenting. There are plenty of ways to screw up our kids, but whether they color during church, for example, is not one of them. There is not a straight line from doodling in the service as a toddler to doing meth as a teenager. Could it be that beyond the basics of godly parenting, that most of the other techniques and convictions are nibbling around the edges? Certainly, there are lots of ways that good parents make parenting a saner, more enjoyable experience, but even the kid addicted to angry birds who just downed a pack of Fun Dip is now watching, and is now watching his third Pixar movie of the week still has a decent shot of not being a sociopath. So what we realize that there, there's actually a conveying of the Father's love and generosity even in just spending time with your children. That's actually part of the witness. Yes, instruct, in discipline, teach, pray for. But as I say, sometimes the most effective form of witness is to simply just be with your children, love them, spend time with them, adorn the gospel by conveying authentic Christian love and generosity towards your children. When your children watch you, they should see something of the character of the Heavenly Father that you are teaching them to love. One thing I just say here when it comes, just last comment here, would be on the issue of tech devices. That's another area where I think parents can swing to extremes. Certainly we don't just hand our kid a smartphone when they're eight years old and say, you'll figure it out. There's proper borders and boundaries, just like we need borders and boundaries in the church, borders and boundaries in the home. But again, we can swing to this excessive kind of forms of new legalisms and say, well, I just long for the good old days, right? I, I wish it was Downton Abbey. Why couldn't it just be Downton Abbey? It's so much more tranquil, simple. I want, I'm going to just, we're going to use the rotary phone from now on. I'm saying, well, what you're going to do is you're going to consign your children to live in a different world. They're not going to know how to communicate with friends. They're not going to know how to interact with people at work. Right? So rather than just say wholesale, we're kind of doing our own thing, setting up our own shop, you actually got to teach them how to live in this world in a way that is true, and honest, and reflects the fear of the Lord. And they ought to see that modeled in you. It, it's a matter of understanding providence rightly. That the Lord has put us here, this place, in our local context, at this time. We don't live in 1950. We live in 2023. Right? So being a tech Luddite is not the apex of holiness. Okay? Last thing, three quick comments on witness in the workplace, and then I'm done. A lot of us spend a good deal of time uh, at work. First thing I'd say is refuse to live by lies. This goes for life in the public square in general. As David Wells has put it, it takes no courage to sign up as a Protestant, but to live by the truths of Protestantism 
however, is an entirely different matter. That takes courage. That takes courage. So there's going to be certain things that you just can't engage in at work. The second thing, though, what I would say is we've all sort of got to learn to put up and shut up. What do I mean? Well, your work environment has different standards than we do for a church. We can talk about theonomy and, you know, sphere sovereignty and all that kind of stuff and the, the application of the law, but the reality is, is the workplace has different standards than the church or even the home. And it's not your job to make sure that everyone at work is living as a Christian when they're not. Now, you want them to become Christians. You want to find avenues in which you can talk to them about the gospel and point them to the hope that is found in Christ, forgiveness of their sins, build friendships that they would see your good conduct, your love for them. But don't think it's your job to go about changing everybody and you know, making, making the workplace look like the church because it's not. So you're going to have to put up with certain things and sometimes it's going to mean zipping your mouth. And the last thing is that we need to honor our employers and in particular, honor them by doing the work that you've signed up to do. That actually is, again, part of our witness publicly is we're not going to steal from our employers. I've talked to a number of Christian employers who sometimes say that the worst people working for them are Christians. These Christians are out and about. They're not doing their work. They're like, they're leading a Bible study when they're supposed to be on the factory floor, right? And it's like, well, no, I'm paying you and you've made a contract to do this work. Keep your word. Keep your word. Find times outside of work, you know, lunch break or something, where you can then have a Bible study, do something. But honor your employer. Again, point you back to 1 Peter chapter 2. It's, it's part of then how we are going to bear witness in a crooked and perverse generation that we are people who work with excellence, with diligence, strive to honor those who are over us in the workplace. Okay, so honor your employers, and, and then find time outside of that to bear witness. Now, it's kind of a, a whirlwind tour. If you want to come talk to me more, we'll have a, um, I think we're having a Q&A a little bit later on. You can ask questions about this or other things. I'm going to close in a word of prayer because it's noon, and it's lunchtime, and then we'll head downstairs. So let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. I, I do ask, Lord, that you would help us to be faithful witnesses in the church, in the home, the workplace, wherever you have us. Give us boldness to open our mouths and declare the truth as we ought to. Give us patience. Give us patience with those who are around us. We pray, Lord, that you would be pleased to save many people. Encourage us in these days. We thank you as well even for the food that we are going to eat together we ask that you use it to strengthen our bodies, that we might honor you with the strength we receive from it, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.